Thank you very much. It's really lovely to be with you. So um, this morning, hopefully the uh, presentation will be up. In the, there we go. Excellent. So you're on this um, series called Looking Out. Uh, and this morning, we've, I've been given the title uh, to preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. And so this phrase is often said, it's said to have been said by Francis of Assisi, and he was the founder um, of the group of monks that became to be known as the Franciscans. And he lived about 800 years ago. You don't need to trouble yourself too much with him because he probably didn't say this. Um, but this, this phrase is often used by Christians as this idea that um, our lives should shine out our beliefs. Um, it's not just about the things that we say, um, but also the way that we live out our lives. And that is really appealing, um, especially to those of us who are maybe more on the introverted end of the scale or might be a bit shy. This idea that we you know, don't use words if you have to, but before that, you can definitely use your life. And sometimes this is used as a bit of an excuse or as a reason not to say anything at all. And it's really appealing if maybe you've been hurt by things that Christians have said in the past, um, or if you've been part of that environment with those sort of really strong turn and burn type preaching. Actually, this can feel like a bit of a salve, a bit of a kind of healing balm on some of those things that might have been quite wounding to you. Now, a survey in 2019 in America found that most Christians who are millennials, so that those who are currently in their kind of mid-20s to early 40s, most of them agreed that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. And most of them agreed that they knew how to respond when someone raises questions about their faith. But nearly half of American Christians, so from 20 to 40, agreed at least somewhat with the statement that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Nearly half of people thought that that was not, that, that, that they would, didn't want to share their faith with other people. And I think in this country, I think it might be a higher proportion. And to some people in the church now, um, it feels easier, it feels kind of more natural somehow to live out our faith rather than speak about our faith. It's easier to resort to preaching the gospel and, if necessary, using words than it is to actually use words. I think the Bible is clear that we're supposed to do both, um, to use our words and to use our lives. Just being a good person isn't actually enough. And please don't think that I have this right, because I really don't. And I am not good at evangelism. And when I saw that that was the topic for this series, then I was like, oh, no, not this. I can't talk about this. I would much prefer not to, to speak words. I would much prefer just to be able to do things. I would much prefer that. I'd much prefer to be able to live out my faith and, if necessary, use words. So please don't think that I'm not speaking to myself this morning because I really am. So I was given two passages, and the first one of those uh, was this one. If it's. Hey! There we go. Micah 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to act justly? to love mercy and to walk humbly. Uh, this was Micah's attempt to summarise all of the law, to summarise what we should be doing, um, or rather what God asks of us. 
And you could do a whole series just on this one verse. And in fact, you did. Uh, I listened to them all this week. They were just a few years ago. Um, but the context for this passage, just to kind of put it in a bit of uh, a bit more of, of where we are, um, in this, this beginning bit of Micah, it's like a courtroom drama. And it's a back and forth between God and the people of Judah. So God lays out this case against them, saying that they've got tired of God, that they've gone away from him. And Judah says, but you don't care about us. Um, there's all these bad things happening. You don't really care about us at all. And back and forth it goes between God and the people of Judah. And eventually Judah says, all right, maybe what we'll do is we'll offer you more sacrifices because surely that is what you want. And Micah says, no, that's not what God wants. He's more interested in these things, in what we do, in how we build relationships with those around us and with God at the same time. These are the things he's into, not more sacrifices. And that's how we get to this verse. Um, And this verse is immensely popular with Christians. There are thousands of images with this verse on that you can download for your own phone wallpaper. You could buy it as a poster or a sticker or a t-shirt or a necklace on rings. There's water bottles, there's key rings, there's Micah 6, 8 tattoos, the whole lot. We love this verse as Christians. And maybe it's because these are active terms. These are things that we actually have to get on and do to act, to walk, to love. These are things that it actually gives us something to do, not just to think or to believe or to feel. These are actually things that we can get up and we can get on with things. It makes us feel like we're making a difference. It makes us feel like we're really contributing. But also, these terms give us something to speak against. Um, And I think lots of us find it easier to find something in life that we can, you know, shake our fists at and get a bit angry at. It gives us a bit more passion and fire. Um, And these things are things like injustice. Um, And they can give us a real fire in our bellies and give us a purpose. And we want to stand up for the poor and poorer people in our society. We want to stand up for the oppressed because we can see the injustice there. But we don't get to pick and choose the injustice that we stand up for. This verse doesn't say, oh, you should definitely speak up on behalf of these people, but not those ones. If we're going to be the voice for the voiceless, then we have to accept the challenge of representing people who might be marginalised and who we might not agree with, but who might not have a voice in that. Maybe you're a bit annoyed today that you didn't get the football coverage that you wanted yesterday. And that all came about because one person who's never openly talked about any faith in God, in fact, quite the opposite, but that one person acted on behalf of people who risk their lives to very often flee persecution and injustice. Maybe that kind of annoyed you yesterday. Maybe you're on team Gary Lineker. But if we're truly to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly... We have to speak up for all sorts of things. Maybe we have to speak up about racial injustice. Maybe we have to educate ourselves about all those institutional structures that so often in this country oppress people of colour. That those of us who are white never have that because of the colour of our skin. Those injustices in the legal system. And we have to speak up on those issues when our voices actually count for something. And we have to educate ourselves on those too. We might have to look around us at the environmental catastrophe that's happening right at this moment. 
the way that our actions affect poorer nations and poorer people unequally. And then, if we're going to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly, we have to change our behaviours and our actions. Maybe we have to start getting out on the streets and start you know, causing a fuss. And maybe we have to do that because that's what this verse is saying. Living out this verse, actually, will be a lifetime's achievement in its own right. The social action side of our faith is really important. I do believe it's what Christians should be doing. But it's not the whole story. And that's probably where we reach the second set of Bible verses that I was given for today, which is a passage in Acts. So before we read, a little bit of context about what's happening. Um, In the previous chapter in Acts, Peter and John had gone off to the temple. They'd healed a man who had been unable to walk. And then um, they'd been talking to the people as well, talking about Jesus. And the temple authorities are really unhappy about what they're saying because they're talking about Jesus. And they arrest Peter and John. And basically, they give them a gagging order. And they say, all right, we'll let you go, but you're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter and John appear before the religious rulers um, and they're asked how they're doing all these things, this healing and conversions. And Peter, it says, is filled with the Holy Spirit and he tells the the, the religious leaders about Jesus, about Jesus' death, about his resurrection. And then eventually Peter and John are released, as I said, with this gagging order. So now we're in the passage that I've been given, which is Acts chapter 4. So we're going to Acts chapter 4 from verse 23. Uh, and I'm reading from Tom Wright's translation of the New Testament. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they'd been released, they went back to their own, that's Peter and John, they went back to their own people and told them everything that the chief priests and elders had said. When they heard it, they all together lifted up their voices to God Sovereign Master, they said, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. And you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our ancestor David, your servant, why did the nations fly into a rage? And why did the peoples think empty thoughts? The kings of the earth arose and the rulers gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah. It's true. Herod and Pontius Pilate together with the nations and the peoples of Israel, gathered themselves in this very city against your holy child Jesus, the one you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had decided beforehand should happen. So now, Master, look on their threats and grant that we, your servants, may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing so that signs and wonders may come about through the name of your holy child Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they boldly spoke the word of God. So there's some really interesting things that are happening here. So they've faced this persecution for things that they've been doing and things that they've been saying. And what is their action? Do they go back to the temple immediately and start speaking to more people? Do they go to the marketplace, the the sort of Roman equivalent of going to the Daily Mail and saying, look, we've been mistreated? No, in, in verse 23, it says they go back to their own people. They go to their support network. They head for the people that understand them best. And they explain everything that had happened. And then people agree to a spontaneous prayer meeting. 
And I think that's a really important lesson for those of us maybe who are worried about speaking up about Jesus. We need our people. We need those that we can go to where we can say, look, you know, I think I did everything right, but it still left me hurting. We need people that are going to listen. Not that they're going to judge our feeble efforts, our, maybe they're feeble compared to, to Peter and John at least, but we need people who will meet us and encourage us and pray with us and pray for us. So in verses 24 to 40, the whole group together prays. And they start off by acknowledging who God is and his place and his part in this whole world and the world in general and their lives in particular. And they call on him as the creator, as the one who knows everything and everyone. They use words from the Psalms and they apply them to their situation. And this Psalm that talks about God putting his chosen people right in the midst of really difficult nations where their role is to be God's kingdom on earth. This Psalm talks about the the fact that they are supposed to be the ones bringing peace. They're the ones to bring justice. And then from verse 27, that the, the prayer moves on. It talks about God being the God of history. And even the actions of the rulers, the things they've done towards the Lord Jesus, they are part of, they've been part of God's plan as well. And what's interesting in this prayer is what they don't ask for. And there are psalms that would ask for judgment on the people that have wronged them. There are psalms that ask God to act on their enemies. And they don't use those psalms. They don't say, okay, God, would you bring judgment on these people that have worked against us? They don't pray against the rulers. They don't say, God, you should punish these people that are causing us this problem. They don't pray for a swift end to these rulers. The community doesn't pray for protection for themselves, even after they've heard everything that's happened to Peter and John. In amongst all of the threats that they've received, this gagging order, they're told not to talk anymore. And they could easily have prayed for all of that to to bring justice, to God to bring justice on those people. They don't pray for the situation to be solved miraculously and instantly. They don't pray for those rulers to be saved. They don't ask God to cause more conversions in the region. They they ask in verse 29, they ask for God to look at the threats and they ask for boldness. They pray for strength even in the middle of that opposition, and they pray for boldness, boldness to speak God's word. They ask for God to act while they are given courage to use words. And I don't know how often we've prayed boldness for ourselves. We might pray it for other people who we think might be going through a tough time. We might pray it for our church leaders or for others in positions of authority, but for us? But this was the community that Peter and John went to. And we've all got a part to play to make community. We actually all have a part to play in that. We, each of us, need to pray and ask for and then to use boldness. And even when in this prayer they ask for God to act, it's not about revenge or anger or striking down people. They ask for healing. They ask for more signs and wonders. It's an incredible, incredible verse incredible prayer. The community acknowledges their position, the place they're in, in that persecution that's taking place, and then they ask for boldness. And the results, 
verse 31, the place shakes and that community there are filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke. They spoke with the boldness that they'd asked for. And this prayer is given an immediate yes in a really dramatic way. So perhaps then we need to put those verses together. Perhaps we need to put the, the, the actions, our love and mercy and that humble way from Micah uh, alongside the idea that we need to speak boldly. Go to the next slide, please. Thanks. So we need to then act justly, love mercy, walk humbly and speak boldly. That's not too much to ask, is it? We can definitely get on with that this afternoon. It's not too much to ask of God, um, but it feels like a lot to ask of me. How am I going to do this? How are we going to do this? What difference is this going to make to us tomorrow morning? What difference is it going to make to the week that you've got coming ahead or the month that you've got coming ahead? How can we keep all of these things going at the same time? So I wonder here whether some sort of symbol might help us. Um, So the Bible says that we are called to be salt in the world. And salt is important for so many things, for preserving, for adding flavour, for healing. And Christians are called to be salt, to go out into the world, to speak God's words. And like salt, that is not always comfortable. Actually, we're called to be salt and light. And you know what is salty and light? Popcorn. Uh, And so uh, I've got a couple of volunteers. Please take that. There'll be a bag of popcorn for you. Um, And if you want to open it and eat it now, feel free. I am not averse to speaking over the gentle sound of crunching. Um, That's fine. But what actually what you've got is a bag of sweet and salty popcorn. You don't have to make a decision anymore about which one you want. Nowadays, you can even ask for it in the cinema. You know, they will give you a bag of mixed sweet and salty popcorn. What a time to be alive. Um, so, so if you don't like one or the other, what I suggest you do is find someone that likes the other one, lick each piece, oh thanks, and then swap. Um, yeah, lick it to see if it's salty or sweet, and then you give it, yeah. Um, it's just a suggestion. So apparently, so there's this big trend at the moment, isn't there, for salty and sweet food. Um, salt, everything that is salted caramel nowadays. So this combination of salty and sweet, apparently when it's mixed, especially when it's combined with a fat, apparently that taps into something in our brains. And it's the layers of flavour make our flavor, the flavour receptors in our brain give these really strong positive responses. But I read an article on the internet and it put it like this. Too much sugar is overly intense and too much salt simply tastes terrible. But when you mix the two, the combination is heavenly. And if you took all the salt that was in that bag of popcorn and you put it on one kernel of popcorn and you ate that one kernel, I think it would taste awful and it actually might make you sick. For the salt to have the best effect, it has to be shaken and distributed through the pack. And it's the, sort of the same with the sugar. If it was all on one kernel and nothing on the rest, that one kernel would be really intensely sweet and the rest of it would taste bland. For this bag of sweet and salty popcorn to be at its most delicious, the combination of flavours have to be distributed evenly throughout the packet. So too much sugar is overly intense and too much salt simply tastes terrible. But when you mix the two, the combination is heavenly. And maybe that's what our words and actions are supposed to be. 
distributed evenly. Words without actions are dead, but actions without the words to back them up isn't giving people the full picture. If we're just a nice person, if we're just a good person, without ever really explaining what our motive is or ever talking about Jesus that makes us do these things, it's just not enough. We need to be the salt in the world, but we also need to bring the sweetness. And it's the combination of the two that is the most effective. So there we are. It's all sorted then, right? Uh, That's all we need to do. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, speak boldly. So why do I find it so difficult? Why can't I speak up about Jesus when I know that I should? Why can't I always practice justice and mercy in my workplace or my home or where I study or with my friends? And I found this quote from Maya Angelou, the American writer and poet, really helpful. I'm grateful, she said, to be a practicing Christian. I'm always amazed when people say I'm a Christian and I think already it's an ongoing process. You know, you keep trying and blowing it and trying. And maybe that's what we need to do, practicing. And know that you're not going to get it right every time. Maybe you won't get it right half of the time. Maybe 99 times out of 100, you get it wrong. But it's practice, and we have to practice. We have to try it out, and we have to give ourselves the grace to fail. And we have to give ourselves the community that's around us, as Peter and John had, that picks us up, that prays with us, that supports us and says, you tried, that's brilliant. It doesn't matter about what happened. It's practice. We're practicing. So maybe you think, oh, do you know, I need to practice more mercy. Or maybe you're thinking, I need to to speak more boldly. Maybe you're an expert. Please help the rest of us. Um, But perhaps there is still a missing element and it, came, it comes at that end of that passage in Acts, I think. It said that the people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And maybe that's what we need now. We've sung it so often this morning. Maybe we need to be filled with God in a new and a personal way. And in my preparation, one of the things I was listening to said that sometimes we think about being filled by the Holy Spirit like a cup. You know, there's a cup on the table and it's filled to the brim with water. And then as other writers have said, you know, sometimes we leak. But in that picture, we think, oh, we are this cup and the Holy Spirit is poured into us right up to the top, this overflowing of the Spirit. But actually that cup is so full that it can't be moved. It just sits somewhere on a table, on a desk, but it's full, but it's not really doing anything. And one of the speakers I was listening to about this passage in Acts said, maybe we need to think about being filled by the Spirit more like the sails of a boat. The wind blows and it fills the sails and the boat moves. The sails are full, but not like a cup that might sit on a table, but those full sails create this most incredible forward movement. And in that passage in Acts, the filling of the Holy Spirit didn't happen to just one or two people. It wasn't just for the elders or the Sunday school teachers or just for Peter and John or the people who were outwardly spiritual. It was for everybody. Everybody was filled with the Spirit. Another commentator I read said, our churches are collectively what we are individually. Our churches are collectively what we are individually. And everybody, the whole church, individuals and community was filled with the Spirit. And are we personally... And are we collectively a people who act justly, a people who love mercy, a people who walk humbly, and a people that speak boldly? 
And now those kernels of popcorn were heated and the air in them expanded and they burst out. Where might you need your sails filled this morning? Where do you need to be salt and light? Where might you have got the balance wrong? Where might you have been overly intense, so overly intense that the person that you were talking to actually thought, whoa, this is, this is bad, this tastes terrible. Where have you left pe- people feeling sick from the things that you might have said or done? But where do you need to be filled with the Spirit? Where does our community need to be filled with the Spirit? like the sails on that boat, so that we can move together as one and move together with boldness wherever God's taking you, whatever he's asking you to say, wherever he's asking you to make a difference for him. In that passage in Acts, the community prayed, the community asked for boldness, the community was filled, and they moved powerfully. Thank you.